God is saying, I'm not gonna start this journey with you and then abandon you someday. No, I'm with you to the very end. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Our just and gracious Father, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you have sent your Son and your Spirit to abide with us. And we know that there's no safer place in life or in death than to be in Christ. This doesn't mean life will be harmless, but it's truly never hopeless. And so we ask the Lord that you would bless now the preaching and the hearing of your word for your sake, for the glory of your name and the good of your church. It's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen. Amen. Martin Luther was credited as saying, nothing in the world causes so much misery as uncertainty. If you've ever had the opportunity to move to a new place, to go to a new school, to start a new job, or you walk into the blackness of whatever uncertainty that life has for you in a new season, then you understand both the excitement as well as the tension which accompany uncertain territory. In Luther's case, hanging over the precipice of Uncertainty wasn't as much mirth as it was misery, but all of us can understand what that's like as we go into the uncertain. And in our study through Genesis, we have been on a sort of journey with Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and we've been journeying with him since chapter 25. We've seen both his great successes and his great failures. Ever since Bethel, when God revealed himself to Jacob and promised that he would be with him, we've seen a constant and consistent display, both of the fragile, desperately broken, sinful man known as Jacob, but even greater than that, we've seen a display of the gracious and compassionate God who loved him and called him by his own name. We've seen how throughout every scenario, God has been with Jacob. God had been with him when he was fleeing from the deadly vengeance of his twin brother Esau, whom he had stolen his father Isaac's birthright from. God had been with him when he, remember, arrived at the well and his eyes fell upon his soon-to-be beloved wife, Rachel, whom he'd be willing to work seven years for. We saw God with him even that night when her father Laban deceitfully snuck in her sister Leah into their tent. God had been with Jacob not only for seven years, but for 14, which turned into 20 laborious years as his wage continued to change and he fought the injustice of Laban. God had been with him in building his massive flocks of sheep and goats. God had been with Jacob in the night watch when the angel of the Lord wrestled with him and touched his hip. God would, had been with Jacob when he finally anxiously reunited with his estranged brother, only to see this reunion met with reconciliation and forgiveness. God had been with him even in Shechem when his sons acted out in wrathful anger against the men of the city for defiling their sister, Dinah. God had been with Jacob when he buried his beloved wife 
when she gave birth to his youngest son, Benjamin. God had been with him when he heard the terrifying news that his other son ostensibly had been torn apart by wild animals. God had been with him in the severe famine. God had been with him when the grain and the money returned with his sons. God had been with him when he cautiously sent Judah with Benjamin as a pledge of his safety to rescue and bring back Simeon. All along, God was with Jacob. God had been the one who never left him nor forsake him. And now as he learns the news that Joseph has in a way been resurrected from the dead, we see him here continuing to call upon the name of the Lord and we see God communicating to him that I will be with you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's the title of our sermon this morning, God with us. And in our text together in chapter 46, we're gonna see three sections. First, how God prepares his people, verses one through eight. God prepares Jacob to go into the uncertainty, into the unknown of Egypt. But secondly, we're gonna see in this long list of genealogy, how God really preserves his people, that God has a plan for his people and that is to preserve them for his name. And finally, we'll see that God provides for his people in verses 28 through 34. As Joseph goes ahead and stands as an advocate for his own family before Pharaoh, we see God is a God who provides. And it's my prayer today that as we see the uncertainty of Egypt looming in front of Jacob, that you and I would come to understand that not only God's presence, God's preservation, but even his provision would not be thwarted by our fears of what is uncertain. No, see, like Israel and his family, we can trust that God is with us to the very end of the age. And folks, that changes everything. If God be for us, then who can be against us? So let's begin with our first section. God prepares his people. Verse one tells us that Israel left Canaan on the invitation of Joseph, he arrives in Beersheba. Now you should remember this name from Genesis 21. Remember Beersheba was the place where his grandfather Abraham had made a pact or a covenant together with a man by the name of Abimelech. They had made a covenant together at this place known as the Well of the Oath. And this is also a place where Abraham in Genesis 21 called on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. It was at this place. So this is a place that the family knew well, and this is a place where even his ancestors had been calling on the name of God. And so he begins to uh, do likewise. He begins to offer sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Parents, what a wonderful thing to see our children calling on the name of our God. What a, what a glorious thing that is. And so verse two, it says, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Now, I want to be careful here and do a, a hard time out. And I want to point out that we can't overread into every reference or mention of Jacob and Israel. Though I said last week in chapter 45, there are some instances that seem to jump off the page where we go from Israel to Jacob, Jacob to Israel. We can't do that in every instance. We have to be careful that we don't overread what's really not in the text. And so sometimes it seems like Israel is walking back in his old deceptive ways and the text calls him Jacob. But it doesn't mean every time Jacob's name is mentioned that he's in the flesh. Like here's an example, Psalm 46, which I encourage you to meditate on often. Uh, the psalmist said, the sons of Korah say in verse seven, the Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, they're not saying here that that fortress is shaky because it's the God of Jacob. And we know Jacob is a little bit shaky. That's not the idea at all. They're just calling upon, reminding us of the name of Jacob, which was his name given at birth, which is a summarization of uh, the natural people of God. And so they're not saying this is a bad thing uh, to prove a point. And so here in verse two, God is speaking to Israel in visions at night, and he calls out the name given to him at birth twice. And he says, Jacob, Jacob. And by the way, whenever God calls someone in the middle of the night in scripture, the only appropriate response is, here I am. In fact, whenever God calls anyone, the appropriate response is, here I am. You're calling me, I'm here to listen. And in verses three and four, God here reveals himself again to Jacob, though he has done so previously in the past. And notice with me that he gives him a strong command, but there's also four promises. Notice with me the promises first. First, God says, I will make you into a great nation. Now, this is not a new promise for the patriarchs. God has already promised both his father and his grandfather this. And with all of the descendants that we just read through and we'll look at in verses 8 through 27, this was a part of God's preservation, not only of Israel's lineage, but also of the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham that we've been waiting for since Genesis 3, who would crush the head of the serpent. God is going to make Israel into a great nation, and he promises them him that here. But secondly, he says, second promise, I myself will go down with you. Israel and all of his children's children, all of the grandchildren, all of the tribe that he's responsible for, which will become 12 tribes, he, he and they are not venturing into a godless, hostile, unknown place by themselves. And in case he feared that God would start with him but not stay with him, notice the third promise. Not only will I make you into a great nation, not only will I myself go down with you, but I myself will bring you up again. You see, this is almost exactly the same promise that God had made with him when he left Bethel and ventured north to live with the squirrely Laban. God is saying, I'm not gonna start this journey with you and then abandon you someday. No, I'm with you to the very end. The same one who's gonna go down with you is gonna come back up with you. And then we have the fourth promise and notice how specific and intimate this is. He says, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob, I know you're going into hostile territory, but it's not Pharaoh's hand or the hand of his army which will come against you. J Jacob, you're not gonna be bereaved of your children after all. No, the hand of the very son you loved and seemingly lost is gonna be the very hand that closes your eyes in death. If God's first promise was more general, this couldn't be more specific and therefore comforting. Jacob could bank upon the promises of God and notice his reaction. Verse five, well, first notice the command. The command is, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. That's the command. And so Jacob could bank on and obey this command as we see him immediately doing in verse five. He set out from Beersheba because of the promise of God. And as we apply this to our own lives for just a moment, we realize that 
at various times when God prepares his people, his promises are the things that empower our obedience. You see, it's not the other way around. It's not that our obedience prompts the promises of God. Well, because you've obeyed me, okay, now I decide I will keep my promises. And that needs a hearty amen this morning because that is desperately bad news. If all of the promises of God were predicated that hang upon your obedience, my obedience, well, we're sunk, we're done. But see, God's promises are the things that empower our obedience. And so we don't obey in order to receive his promises because the promises of God are already yes and amen in Christ. And Christ himself is the fulfillment of all the promises of God to his people. And so we don't enter into the fulfillment of God's promises through compliance as much as we do through Christ. Does that make sense? And let's bring this down. As a husband, as a husband, you and I men are called to love our wives. That is a command that we can't shirk off, avoid, ignore, or say, well, I'm still in process yet. No, love your wives. That's a command. And men, if we're honest, we fall short far more than we want to admit and far more than our wives even know about. And this is happened to be recorded this morning. So I'm not going to admit how often I fail to love my wife or that you fail to love your wife. But here's the reality. When I learn that the father loves the son perfectly, when I learn that Christ loves me perfectly, when I learn in the scriptures that I can love because he first loves me and that Christ himself loves his wife, his bride, the church, that he has given himself for her, then I find the strength to love my wife. And it doesn't flow from my own love for her. I'm just a conduit for the love of God to his people to flow through. Does that make sense? I can bank in the promise of God that he loves me and his love flows through me uh, to my wife. I, I read verses like Philippians 2.12 and I say, I need to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. But then I go to the verse right before that or right after that, and I realize, oh, it's God who is working in me, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I can work out my salvation knowing there's a promise that he's already worked it in me. I can seek the things that are above, that's a command, where Christ is seated, why? Because of the promise that I've already died, and my life is hidden with Christ and God. Like Joshua, I can be strong and courageous, why? Because of the promise, I am with you. And so Jacob can confidently pack up and get on the wagons and go to Egypt. Why? Because his obedience has been empowered by the promises of God. And so notice with me in verse five, they transport everyone and everything, how? Through the means that were provided through Pharaoh. The means were the wagons we learned about last week. These extravagant gifts from Pharaoh. They didn't have to come in their own strength. They came by the means that were provided for them. And notice in verse eight, uh, seven, it says, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And God has prepared his people for the uncertainty that laid ahead. But let's look at the second section, how God preserves his people. And beginning in verse eight, we have a long list of the sons of Israel uh, and their children. Remember, he had uh, four different wives. And so we begin with Reuben, the firstborn. Verse nine, we're not gonna go through every name, but verse nine lists the sons of Reuben. Verse 10, we have the sons of Simeon. And all we have special here is uh, that Shaul was, quote, the son of a Canaanite woman. We know that is forbidden 
And so that's the only special thing we learn about Simeon's sons. Uh, verses 11 and 12, we have the sons of Levi and Judah. But of course, the sons of Judah there in verse 12, uh, we are reminded of the story in Genesis 38. And we are reminded that Er and Onan uh, died in the land of Canaan. They were struck by God. But then we have their replacements, so to speak. We have the sons of Perez. Uh, and we have, of course, Zerah. So Perez and Zerah, remember, were the twin uh, sons born to Judah and Tamar. Remember, he was supposed to give Tamar to his son Shelah. Uh, and instead, he withdrew his son and preserved and protected him. Of course, uh, Tamar uh, dressed as a prostitute. And she uh, presents herself to Judah, who doesn't know who she is. Uh, and then she conceives these two sons. And if you remember there, Zerah um, had put his hand out and breached and the midwife had tied the scarlet cord on his hand, but then he pulled it back in, which was very odd to happen, and then Perez, his brother, was born first. So we have a summary of the sons of Judah. And with that, out of all the brothers, out of all the children, that is the most controversial, the most uh, story that makes you blush out of this whole list. And yet it's Judah, because of the redemption of God, it's Judah who is the bloodline through which our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, the king, uh, king known as David was born from. So we have in verse 13, the sons of Issachar, and in verse 14, the sons of Zebulun. And verse 15 gives us a summary. It says, these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. And altogether, his sons and his daughters, through Leah, numbered 33. We're going to keep track of this in a moment. But that's all that were born through Leah. Uh, well, now we have Leah's maidservant, Zilpah. So we have the sons of Gad in verse 16 and the sons of Asher in verse 17. You guys remember this story. Of course, Leah uh, and Zilpah. Zilpah was her maidservant. And she had given her maidservant to Jacob during the first annual Padan Aram birthing competition. You remember that? They were going back and forth and her hope was to outpace Rachel uh, the beloved wife. And so now we get a list of Rachel's descendants. Verses 19 and 20, we see Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph is different here. Remember, Joseph's sons are born in Egypt. They weren't born in Canaan. They didn't come up with them. They were waiting there when they arrived. And so they're sort of counted differently. So Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim. We'll see more of them in the, in the days to come. And then we have the sons of Benjamin. Verse 22 says, these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob and there were 14 persons in all. Remember, Rachel didn't live to see all of these children, but they're considered her sons. And then we come to verse uh, 23 uh, and poor Dan, he only had one son, uh, Husham, uh, just the one. And so then we come to Naphtali and uh, Dan and Naphtali, verse 25, tells us these are the sons of Bilhah and this was Rachel's maidservant. Remember, she at first was unable to conceive, and so she sought to bear children by proxy. And in the ancient Near East, uh, many traditions had that if your maidservant gave birth uh, to a child, then you could claim that child as your own if you were unable to conceive. Uh, and so we put all of these together. We've got some math added up on the screen. We have Leah at 33. We have Rachel with 14, Zilpah with 16, and Bilhah with 7. Now, verse 26 tells us that if we don't add everyone's wife, 
then we get 66 people. And verse 27 says, all the persons in Jacob's house who came into Egypt were 70. Now, with that being said, the number 70, we have a potential numeric problem because both the Septuagint as well as Stephen the deacon in Acts chapter seven have this number as 75. And so notice with me on the screen, uh, this is Stephen's speech. He says, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Oh boy, that's incorrect according to this. Now the Bible's inaccurate. Let's pack it up and go to siesta. Is that what's happening here? Well, no, the number 70 here and the number 75 elsewhere in the old and in the new does not mean that these are errors. Okay, scholars just point out the number 75 from Stephen and the Septuagint includes the five children and grandchildren of Joseph's two sons, which are not mentioned here as coming into Egypt because remember they were already in Egypt. And so Stephen is saying Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his kindred. And then when they arrived, there were 75 persons in all. 75 people in three generations. I find it fascinating that it had been 220 years since God had declared to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Abraham, I'm gonna make you so great that your descendants will be so innumerable that if you look up into the night sky, that number of stars is comparable to the amount of offspring. In fact, look down at the sand in the desert and try to count the grains of sand. You can't. And so shall your offspring be. I find it interesting because here we are 200 years later and it seems like God is slow to keep his promise. It seems like at this point there should be tens of thousands of people and yet there's still under 100. And yet as we consider this point this morning about how God preserves his people, I want to apply it this way, that God's ways are higher than our ways. You see, that includes both the object of his work and the hour of his work. Just think of the objects of his work, that his ways are higher than our ways. He takes in the garden dust and he forms man from dust and he forms man into his own image. And from this man, from his side, he forms woman. In fact, God didn't even need DNA to start with. You've been with us in the beginning of this series from Genesis 1.1. It doesn't say God took the existing materials in the universe and bang, everything came into existence. No, he doesn't even need DNA. With a word he spoke and creation came into existence. He didn't need Israel's family to be the best and the brightest crayon in the Crayola box. But on the contrary, he chose the least. He chose the smallest. In fact, listen to these words from Deuteronomy chapter seven. This is on the other side of Egypt. This is on the, the future side of this exodus. Deuteronomy seven, six through eight says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And notice this, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You weren't 
the most impressive, powerful people. You were the least. But this was to show my kindness, my goodness, my power, my love. Well, Paul, the apostle, shares the New Testament's equivalent of Deuteronomy 7. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, consider our own calling, he says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised, the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, not only is God capable of doing anything he desires in and through the objects of his work, his people, but he also accomplishes his purposes in the hour of his work. You see, his timing is perfect. Even though you and I may disagree with him that his hour is a little bit late and he's a little slow in fulfilling the timing we were expecting. But as we look at this point in Israel's family, and this is an impressive list, but it's less than 100 people, hundreds of years later. We realize, as Isaiah 60 verse 22 makes this connection, that God's timing is perfect. Isaiah 60, 22 says, the least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. And here's the part, I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. In other words, don't be unimpressed with the day of small beginnings. Don't be discouraged at that. God will accomplish it. I like what David Gusick says here. He says, quote, like many great works of God, Israel had a slow beginning. From the time God called Abraham, it took at least 25 years to add one son, Isaac. It took Isaac 60 years to add another son of Israel, Jacob. It took 50 or 60 years for Jacob to add 12 sons and one daughter. But in 430 years, Israel would leave Egypt with 600,000 men. It took this family 215 years to grow from one to 70, but in another 430 years, they grew to 2 million or more, end quote. You see, friends, God is always faithful to preserve his people. His ways are higher than our ways. And our preservation isn't contingent upon our worth or contingent upon the timing we think God should be acting in. See, the same God who preserved Israel continues to preserve all who trust in him by faith. And so we can trust that God's ways are higher than our ways. How is it that God can keep us to the very end as we just say? Well, his ways are higher than our ways. It's beyond finding out. Now, as they arrive, we see Joseph making proper arrangements for them. And in this last section, we see how God provides for his people. So notice verse 28. It says that Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to show the way before him in Goshen. They've got a lot of uh, caravan coming. And so he, Judah goes ahead of them and they come into the land of Goshen. Now notice with me again, Judah has again taken the mantle of the firstborn. He is the leader among the sons. You could say he's the forerunner to ensure that the paths are made straight for them to come into this land. And so then it says in verse 29 that Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. Will you go with me for a minute with Joseph and his chariot? Will you go with me to fathom Israel and Joseph's relief, joy, and the depth of emotions that they're feeling at this moment? 
I mean, from Israel's perspective, as a father, the son that had been lost is now found. The one who he thought was dead is now alive again. He had mourned for him all of those years and years. And now here he is in the flesh coming to embrace him, very much alive. And it would have been good enough news to know he was alive. Even if he was a slave, he's alive. But he's much more than a slave. No, he's second in command only to Pharaoh. And then from Joseph's perspective, my father, whom I never thought I would see again, I imagined he died of old age years and years ago. Not only is he alive, he's in my arms. I'm finally in the presence of the one who clothed me in his royal robes, and I'll never be apart from him again. This would have been a beautiful, wonderful reunion. No wonder it says he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And I love Israel's response in verse 30. He says, okay, now let me die. Since I have seen your face and I know you are still alive. I'm good. He's not in any way saying, I don't want to continue to live with you and, and see all of your usefulness and all of your honor in this land. As sons, we love to be able to demonstrate that for our dads, to make them proud. Hey, dad, I'm living a life of usefulness and honor. Pay attention to it. But see, it's more that because he's finally seen his son, he's just happy to, he's happy to die. His gray hairs are not going to be drugged down into sorrow, into Sheol. But he can die with joy. But what he doesn't know is that he's going to go on to live another 17 years. I love what Matthew Henry says in his commentary, quote, death will not always come just when we call for it, whether in a passion of sorrow or in a passion of joy. Our times are in God's hand and not in our own. We must die just when God pleases and not either just when we are surfeited with the pleasures of life or just when we are overwhelmed with its griefs, end quote. And so though Joseph has invited his family to come and he's provided for them to come, Nevertheless, he can't just presume upon Pharaoh. Yes, he's second in command. Yes, he was the one that interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and then uh, rightly had a plan of wisdom and how to handle these seven years of abundance and, and famine. But no, he's not an Egyptian. And no, he's not Pharaoh himself. He still has to go through the proper channels of protocol. So verse 31 tells us that he says to his father, here's what you're to say and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and tell Pharaoh and I'm going to let him know that you're coming and that you're shepherds. And then you're to tell whoever asks you, if it's Pharaoh, you're to let him know that you are those who keep sheep. And then it seems to end strangely. And we find at the end of chapter 46, the very last verse tells us that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So what's happening here? Well, Israel can't just march his large family right up to Pharaoh's household and say, can we stay for a few 400 years with you? We're that family that will never leave. Uh, no, see, listen, they needed a representative. They needed, you could say, an advocate, one who would stand before Pharaoh and not only represent the people before him, but also who would speak on their behalf. And so Joseph gives his family instruction on what to say when they stand before Pharaoh. You're to say you're shepherds. Here's why. The Egyptians were agricultural to a certain extent, but they also despised shepherds. Why? Because they were considered unclean. 
Sheep were considered unclean and those who tended them. And so you've learned recently, we talked about how Egypt, uh, the Egyptians had a, a uh, preference for their religion and they really prejudiced against those who had different religions. And so this is a part of God's providence of segregating Israel from the people of Egypt. Uh, not only are they segregated in proximity, but notice they're given the land of Goshen. This was a sprawling land, a spacious space. God is essentially, even through their vocation, providing in advance a place for his people to have a well-watered, spacious place. God didn't bring them all this way just to leave them without a home. And though it's a home for a short season, God is still faithful in the details. And as we consider Joseph inviting his family to come and standing before Pharaoh as an advocate, we can apply it this way. You know how he's a picture of Christ, that Christ is our advocate and he provides a home for us. When we think of God's provision, we often think of past tense or present tense, which isn't wrong, our justification our forensic right standing before the Father, justified by faith, our sanctification today being conformed into the image of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, not only in regeneration, but also in consistent renewal. But very rarely do we think ahead of our glorification, that moment where we're transformed into glory and united with Christ as his eternal kingdom is consummated. And we often, again, look back rightly at the work of Christ, but how often do we look ahead at our heavenly rest and our heavenly resting place, our heavenly reward? Jesus told this to his disciples on the night he was betrayed and then before he was crucified and buried. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus has gone ahead. He's preparing a place for us so that we can be with him. And yet, even so, today, as he's preparing a place for us, he is also doing double duty of advocating, pleading with the Father before the throne of God on our behalf. 1 John 2.2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, Jesus is standing before, pleading our case, advocating before us. And the Greek word there in 1 John 2 for advocate, it's actually transliterated from the word paraclete which is always used of the Holy Spirit, the alongside helper. And the only time it's used in the Bible to describe Jesus is in 1 John 2, 2. The one who comes to our aid, the one who provides sustainable help when we need it most. Jesus is advocating. He's sustaining us. He's supporting us. He's saying, my blood, I'm the righteous one. And yes, they sinned, but my, my blood has covered their sin. I plead with you, Father. Not only the propitiation, but the one who is the advocate. I like what Dane Ortland says in his book, Gentle and Lonely. He says, quote, your salvation is not merely a matter of a saving formula, but of a saving person. When you sin, his strength of resolve rises all the higher. When his brothers and sisters fail and stumble, he advocates on their behalf because it is who he is. He cannot bear to leave us alone to fend for ourselves. 
Yes, we fail Christ as his disciples, but his advocacy on our behalf rises higher than our sins, end quote. You see, beloved, ever since the garden, God has desired to be with his people. When Adam fell in the garden, what was it that was marred? It was the fellowship. It was the nearness. It was the God-withness. And because of our sin, the relationship and the proximity to God became separation and alienation. And remember Adam's response. God comes up to him in the cool of the day. And what does Adam do? His response is to hide, to alienate, to segregate, to separate. And it's been the same ever since. When we sin, the guilt and the shame of our sin causes separation. But it was God's desire to be with his people. What is the purpose of the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night? It wasn't to be just some divine GPS tracker for the people of God to wander around in the wilderness. No, it it was a a, a manifestation, a, a visible marker of God's witness. I'm with you. I'm present and I'm here. I mean, what was the reasoning behind the tabernacle or the temple? It was for the dwelling place of God to be with man. But because of sin, mankind was doomed to eternal separation, eternal estrangement, eternal alienation, being pushed away, not brought near. And you and I can never satisfy that distance any more than you and I could leapfrog across the Gulf of Mexico to Texas. It's impossible in our own strength to bridge this gap. And that's the work of God. And only God can do this. And that's the glorious good news that Christ came near to draw ostracized, weary sinners in his incarnation, as we just sang. That he came down. He eliminated the separation. He dismantled the alienation. He took the place of punishment. To the extent that he bore the wrath of God, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see there almost a seeming alienation. The favored one became the forsaken one. The one who is one with the father was crushed to death so that those who are by nature children of wrath could be called his beloved. The prince of peace brings shalom to those who are at enmity with the holy, just, almighty creator. This was the purpose of Christ's coming. It was to draw us near. And what was the name that God gave his son? who would put on flesh. Matthew 122, uh, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us, that is the purpose of Christ's incarnation, to be among us, near us, present with his people. And this is what you and I continue to long for, to know and be reminded that God is with you and I. This is what gave Jacob hope and strength to obey. It was the fact that I'm going into the uncertainty, but God is with me. Charles Spurgeon says, quote, God with us is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How can the martyr stand at the stake? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? He goes on to say, God with us, tis the sufferer's comfort. Tis the alleviation of his misery. Tis the sleep which God gives to his beloved. Tis their rest after exertion and toil. Ah, and to finish, God with us, tis eternity's sonnet. 
Tis heaven's hallelujah. Tis the shout of the glorified. Tis the song of the redeemed. Tis the chorus of angels. Tis the everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. You see, when we consider our fears and our failures to trust God in the uncertainty, we realize that our shortcomings are not ever going to thwart the promises of God, the provision of God, or the presence of God. Jesus promises us to be with us to the very end of the age. And we see Joseph here as the one calling his family to him. And at that moment, God reminds Jacob, it's his very eyes, hands that are going to close your eyes in death. He's going to be with you, Jacob, to the very end. And Jesus in the Great Commission says, behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. And by the way, the Great Commission does not have a little asterisk. And you go, what's this asterisk about? And you look in the bottom of your Bibles, your study Bibles, and it says, well, it does say that he promises to be with us to the very end of the age, unless or until you blow it on a Tuesday afternoon. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, I promise I'll never leave you nor forsake you, but even I have a limit and you've reached it. It doesn't say that. No, my beloved brothers and sisters, Christ is with us until the world's end. And as William Tyndale said, therefore let his flock be bold. May the truth of Emmanuel, God with us, be a ballast of hope and encouragement for those of you, and I know there are some, who are walking into the blackness of uncertainty. For some, it's exciting. For many of us, it's a misery. May the reminder this morning that God is with us be our source of encouragement. May we be reminded that the presence of God, as John Piper says, is our soul's final feast. It's not merely the place of heaven that our hearts long for, but the person of heaven. And we'll be with him forever. And yet he says, even today, he's with us. So beloved, be encouraged. Christ is with us until the world's end. Amen? Let's stand together. We're gonna close in song, being reminded again of our daily prayer. In the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, our Lord will never leave us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have brought us near through the blood of Christ. We who once were far. Lord, what a source of encouragement in times of trouble that we can look to the rock of our salvation. That Lord, as we see the ground shaking around us, we find that you're an ever-present help in time of trouble. So therefore, we can fear not. Lord, as we confessed earlier, we can be anxious, therefore, for nothing. Because we know that if you're for us and with us, then nothing that we face will be outside of your sovereign provision and protection. Lord, there are some here today that are, are wrestling, uh, that are struggling with uh, the reality of death in their life, losing a dear friend. There are some among us who are facing the uncertainty of how to provide for their family in the coming days. There are some among us, Lord, who are uncertain whether their children really will call upon the name of the Lord or if they are, are truly unregenerate. God, we call upon you for mercy. And we ask, Lord, that you would remind us to fear not, for I am with thee. Lord, what a wonderful command rooted in a wonderful promise. Strengthen us by your spirit because we are weary 
and we are weak, but we thank you that it's not up to our strength, but yours. And you're graciously providing it every step of the way by your Holy Spirit. We love you and thank you. And we ask, Lord, that you'd be glorified today in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast, King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.